we've pretty much forgotten how to read the Bible together. How can we recover what we've lost? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. And on our previous episode, we really quickly traced the Bible's shift from a communal book to one that's read and mostly interpreted in private. So today we're going to dive into the problems with the modernistic privatized Bible engagement that's so widespread and generally popular today, as well as cast a vision for recovering the lost art of reading together. And I think it's helpful to say up front and important to say up front, that we don't think private reading is bad. So don't worry. <laughs> we think that's important. Keep doing it. But we also think that our general abandonment of communal reading and discussion has resulted in kind of some losses for our formation as God's people and as followers of Jesus. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Alex. And just to remind everyone, you know, our last session, we traced the journey uh, from communal Bible engagement, which was overwhelmingly the practice of God's people, both in Bible times and in the history of the church up until the modern era. So this really is a journey of recovery that we're advocating. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, this whole issue and remembered a book, uh, a landmark book, actually, that came out in 2000 called Bowling Alone. Mm. You guys remember that by I Robert Putman? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, essentially he said, uh, bowling really used to be a communal sport. You ask somebody, do you bowl? Uh, they almost were always part of a league. But over time, you know, people would bowl alone. And, mm. uh, you know, he was really using it, of course, as an analogy for the the, the fabric of, of human society and how more and more of us are doing things alone and isolated. And so I think, you know, in our topic today, there's a similar and even more pronounced trend with the Bible. If you yeah. were to ask anybody, you know, who's a devout Bible reader, uh, tell me about your Bible reading experience. They would almost always begin, well, I, I find a quiet place, you know, alone, you know, to be be by myself. And, you know, as a result, I, I actually think that Bible reading can become lonely. Yeah. And I, I said that really for the first time in a public setting a while back, and people kind of dropped their jaws, kind of like maybe I'd said something heretical. But then <laughs> I noticed that people kind of started you know, started shaking their heads like, yeah, that's the, that's the truth. And I think maybe as a result of that, we've lost some of the joy. Yep. Yep. So this, uh, this episode is going to be a little bit more structured, I guess, than most of our others. Uh, we're going to start out by going over three big deficiencies that take place when we only read in private and then propose four kind of big recoveries for reading in community. So, so deficiency number one or problem number one, is that privatized reading is completely self-motivated. It's all dependent on self-discipline and forming habits kind of on your own. And, uh, you know, Bible reading and Bible literacy are widely recognized crises, crises in the church today. But whenever I see articles giving tips for building a reading habit or improving your Bible literacy, all the tips these people give are like super individualistic, right? Carve out a certain time slot. Pray for uh, hunger for God's word. Start journaling. Um, you know, none of which are bad, but 
it's like the idea of community reading and positive social pressure is just totally forgotten. And this whole thing is completely up to you to figure out. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you think about what we do to people in churches and it's kind of astounding, but this is all on you, basically. You as an individual, the whole health and, of, and the vitality of the church is dependent on your self-discipline, you know, to establish good reading habits uh, with, with the Bible. And in some ways, we're kind of like, I think, Pharisees. We are laying heavy burdens on people. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this just the other day. You know, there are several instances in the New Testament where it says that both Jesus and Paul were giving talks and they go back to the prophets and to Moses and they unpack how the Messiah story was forecasted, you know, earlier then. And they actually go into a great amount of detail and give long talks about this. But, you know, how did how did Paul and Jesus know and how were they so conversant in the prophets and in in the Pentateuch? And it wasn't because they had, you know, a fantastic devotional life. <laughs> yeah. They were they were part and parcel of great reading communities, of synagogue communities that came together each week and read, you know, large swaths of, of scripture and then discussed them into in, in community. So I, I think it's maybe time for us to think uh, less of Bible reading as individual and more as institutional. Hmm. And yeah. you know what would happen if church leaders took this stance? Look, our church, if we if we do anything, we are going to become a reading community, and we won't fail in that. How would how would that impact the church today? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's been shown in some different studies just the impact that positive social pressure can have on on forming a new habit or. Uh, you know, lifestyle change, that sort of thing, whether it's um, exercising, you know, if you have somebody that you know is waiting for you to go running in the morning or whatever, um, or I think there was a study about quitting smoking if you're part of a group that does it, and it's a much more highly effective. Um, but we're so kind of steeped in individualism with our Bible reading that nobody really thinks, hey, maybe getting a group of people together that are holding each other accountable, knowing that they're going to meet every week to discuss the reading or to read together. Um, you know, might just work for, for building this habit. I'd like to jump in then with problem or deficiency number two. That is, when we read alone, we kind of automatically tend to view the Bible as a story about or promises for or commands to me. This is the sola me problem, where <laughs> because we're reading alone, we just naturally revert to the idea that um, it's addressing me personally and individualistically without regard to anybody else or to my community. Um, so there's a whole discussion to be had, which we won't have today, about the fact that when we read this way, we tend to focus on promises, encouragements. Um, strangely, we never seem to talk about words of judgment or correction. <laughs> those, those aren't the ones we seek out in our daily devotions so much, but that's a, a different but related topic. But the main point here is that we tend to just suddenly redirect the Bible's concern for the whole community. And the Bible is overwhelmingly written to whole communities. All those words, you, that we see in the text are almost always plural. 
but yet we change them to singular and think that it's just talking to me. And therefore, um, I think we're misreading the Bible in an important way when we don't see it as a communal address rather than just private words to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's super important. And I think, you know, none of us are saying that God doesn't care about each and every one of us individually. And, not, you know, none of the Bible is for us in our in our private life with God or anything like that. But we're kind of the, the structure of of the body of Christ is as a group, right? Not just a whole smattering of individuals that are kind of loosely connected by a shared belief system or something like that. Like it's the, the primary way that we have to think about this is as to a group. Yeah, I think I think I mentioned last week, you know, we we have reversed what Jewish scholar John Levinson said about the world of the Bible, where they thought first of uh, the community and individuals were there, of course, but they found their identity, first of all, as part of a community, whereas we in the modern world tend to see it the other way. We are, first of all, individuals, self-directing, self-experiencing individuals. And occasionally we like to come together with other individuals and maybe form a group, but yeah. it's just the reverse of the way the Bible thinks. It almost seems like, uh, you know, we've developed almost something of a phobia and, you know, maybe it comes from this single admonition in James where he tells us not to simply be, you know, hearers of the word, but that we should also be doers. And so there, there seems to be like a super abundant, of of coaching on apply the scriptures and we we can't sit down and read the bible without asking how does this apply to me what should i be doing as a result mm. of that and in, in that process then we we do kind of lose the power of the story and i know i've talked to a number of people recently that have said that the bible broke open for them when they stopped fixating on personal application. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. All right, Paul, problem number three. Problem number three, we cut ourselves off um, from the wisdom and perspective of the bigger interpretive community when, when we're just reading alone. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about, actually. The fact that I think we often hear we come to the Bible, you know, that you try to come as a blank slate and just receive whatever it is it's going to tell you with an open mind. But the fact is, we bring our whole selves when we read the Bible. And when we're reading alone, the only thing that's there is our own experiences, our own framework, the biases that we have, you know, the way of thinking that we already um, embrace. All of these are things that we bring to our Bible reading and of course, we can't not do that. Of course, we're going to bring our whole self to the to the Bible when we read it. But the problem is, all of those are my frameworks. Those are my lenses, my way of thinking. And when we're doing it without the benefit of a group, we're just cutting ourselves off from the experiences, the frameworks, the lenses, the insights, the wisdom that other people can share with us. And so it, what we do is we narrow our Bible experience because it's only me in the room and my way of thinking. And therefore it's automatically going to be smaller. Yeah. I had a really powerful example of this uh, a number of years ago when uh, I was the publisher for the Bible experience, which some of you may remember it was 275 
African-American celebrities mm. that they gathered in Hollywood and did this uh, dramatized Bible with the original soundtrack and stuff like that. But I, I, never, I, got, to, yeah. I got to spend some time in the uh, Disney studio hmm. in Hollywood and watch uh, the different actors recording. And I noticed that, that oftentimes there was like this spontaneous weeping that they would, they would start to cry. I was talking to the producer about it afterwards, and she said, you know, it's really fairly common. And I, I thought about it, you know, so much of the Bible is really written within the framework of people who were oppressed, people who had been made captive, people who were slaves. And, you know, what I saw in that studio was not, you know, people turning on, on their tears. These were genuine, heartfelt people kind of feeling stuff deep in their bones that I don't feel. Yeah, when I read about Israel in Egypt or people that have been marginalized or impressed, I think it's just an example, Glenn, of what you were saying as we read through lenses. Yeah, and it's not that we're we're advocating relativism. It's not like your truth and my truth, right. but it's the fact that we will see what the Bible is actually saying better, especially if we're reading it with people who are in a different situation that we are—a life situation, a race a class, a social position, life experiences and history, all of that just brings more richness to seeing what's actually there in the Bible because we filter out things because of our own backgrounds. So we're going to move on to the, the four recoveries here. And I'll start it off with number one. Uh, the first thing that we need to recover is the public reading and the public hearing of scripture. Wow. Did you really say that? <laughs> crazy, I mean, right? That, that sounds crazy. Like we don't even, that's not on anybody's radar, Alex. Like who, who thinks about the public reading and hearing of scripture? Of course, you have a whole set of churches that are liturgical churches and they read through the lectionary and there's a series of readings on a Sunday morning. Um, but this is something else I think you're talking about, right? That there are other kinds of experiences that could be public and they could be hearing as much as reading. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of us have seen in the news where, you know, somebody will gather in, you know, in, on the courthouse steps in Georgia or something and read the Bible aloud for 24 hours in this kind of burst of energy and passion. And it's kind of this, you know, big event or whatever. Uh, we're not necessarily advocating for that, although that's not a bad thing either, but uh, more of like a sustained regular practice of reading out loud, listening to the scriptures together, and just kind of communally letting it mm. wash over you as a group. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we've kind of come to doubt the power of scripture in and of itself to kind of do things in us without exploration, dissection, teaching, by somebody else, but just letting scripture work on you by hearing it. There actually is a, an initiative. Uh, it's, it's relatively small right now, started in New York City, where a group of people would come together for an hour before work and listen to uh, a, a, a dramatized uh, version of the Bible for an hour. Hmm. And uh, I actually attended a few of those there in the New York Times building, or they were at that time. And people would just come and they would 
listen for an entire hour. And I always felt like afterwards people were itching to say something. They hmm. wanted to talk about what they read. And I talked to the people who had uh, started this and they said, well, you know, our, our theory is, is that we hear man's words all the time. Mm-hmm. We just want to hear hear the words of God. So I still think there's room, you know, a, a, a modern kind of synagogue experience recaptured would include both, you know, large swaths of listening, but also an opportunity for discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One small part of this, I'll just quickly mention, I think would be a recovery of the art of public reading. Yeah. I think it's a thing we don't often think about, but um when in the early church and back in the synagogue in judaism there was an art to reading scripture publicly because it's the only way people would hear the bible so people got good at it and i think in oral societies there was more of this whereas i think we don't even really worry about it um it's interesting to know that in the early church being a church reader a scripture reader in the church a lector in other words was actually an ordained position so people were taught there there was a, a gifting there and because that's how people were actually experiencing the bible they made sure it was done well which would also be something we could work on recovering and again enrich people's experience of the bible yeah there's a book by max mclean i think uh called unleashing the word if i'm mm. remembering right um and max is uh a well-known um kind of audio bible voice i guess that's that's done a lot of recording and has put a lot of time and effort into to reading the scriptures aloud so i'll link to that in the show notes if anybody's interested it's all about you know training yourself to read the scriptures publicly and and crafting that that art nice okay we're on the topic of the recovery of communal bible reading and here's the second recovery the recovery of organic discussions versus predetermined agendas. And, you know, honestly, we're talking right now about what happens in a lot of Bible studies where, for all practical purposes, uh, you know, if it was a courtroom, the judge would be pounding the gavel on the table saying, you're leading the witness, you're leading the witness, you know, leading the witness. <laughs> and, and really it is, it's true. The, the, the questions are crafted in a way that we want to keep the Bible safe. We want to keep it predictable. And I think if we were to be honest with people and people were to be honest with us, they would say, you know, honestly, my Bible studies are way too predictable. Uh, they're way too safe. And we've said it before on this podcast that the Bible is something of a wild and a woolly book. And so what we're advocating for are these real organic conversations where all of that wildness and wooliness is allowed to enter in into the conversation and the conversations become far more interesting and, uh, you know, in deep. Yeah. Yeah, I I always come back to the questions that we've crafted for Immerse. Things like, what did you notice for the first time? What confused you? What troubled you? What did you learn about God? Those sorts of things. That that invites a whole different set of, uh, you know, answers or discussion points uh, than just kind of regurgitating whatever happened back in the text. You know, how many times did Paul do this or what did Jesus say about that? Um, that, like you said, Paul, are kind of leading questions, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, when you look back at the synagogue experience, and guys, I know we've said that at some point we're going to dedicate a whole podcast to what the ancient synagogue experience was like, and, and could we recapture that? But there's a, an interesting synagogue story. I think it's Paul's in Ephesus, and you know the Jews are all agitated at him, and and they get kicked out, and so they go next door to the Hall of Tyrannus, and they create their own synagogue experience. But it says there, this is in Acts chapter 19, that Paul held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And, you know, it gives us a, a bit of an insight into what the early synagogue experience was like. We see Paul not just as Paul the preacher, but Paul as the teacher slash facilitator who's leading um, these, these conversations. And uh, we've even, you know, seen in some of uh, our early readings that there are some archaeological digs that would suggest that some synagogues, maybe not all, were actually created in the round. Hmm. They were created, they were structured in a way that was designed for people to have, have conversations. It wasn't just, you know, one person up front delivering the goods. Yeah. Yeah. The, the scriptures and the reader or the teacher were in the middle of the room and all the, all the seats were facing the center, which, you know, you know, made it easier to look at the person that you were talking to if they were across mm -hmm. the room, which is just fascinating that they prioritized it that way. Yeah. And that's kind of seating arrangements automatically more interactive, yeah. right? Because on one side you could be sitting and you can see past the speaker to the the people on the other side versus looking at the back of heads in rows after rows, the mm -hmm. way so many churches are kind of set up. So I think this this is, you know, an encouragement to us that both Jesus and Paul, when they were in the synagogue and reading scriptures, that then the discussion wasn't a one-way sermon. It was an interactive time. There was some back and forth. Uh, we know from Paul's experience in the book of Acts that sometimes it spilled out into the street after the synagogue service was over and the discussion, the lively discussion, uh, continued to go. And I think it's that kind of skill set, that kind of openness to big questions based on Bible reading and engagement around that text is what we've lost by living only in these silos of privatized experience. Yeah. yeah I mean, you actually, you know, you have situations that Paul has to address, like in Corinthians, that, that show us what the ancient, uh, you know, gathering may have looked like, and it, act, that people actually got carried away. And so Paul said, hey, guys, you got to quiet down. You know, you can't mm -hmm. have more than one person speaking at a time, you know, and if one person is speaking in tongues, one other person gives the interpretation. But what we miss sometimes in reading that is, is again, a window into what these early gatherings were like, and they were far more interactive than, you know, what we have today. Yeah. All right. So recovery number three, uh, we need to recover wrestling with the text versus um, the certainty of answers. And we definitely don't want our listeners to misunderstand what we're saying. Obviously, we're going to be searching for consensus and for truth and for uh, answers in the Bible. But sometimes that search has been kind of um, chopped off at the knees or something. I'm not entirely sure the best analogy for it. But, um, you know, a lot of times 
it, it feels like in in group interactions, questions are kind of restricted. Like, oh, we don't go, we don't go there with that. Or, um, you, you know, it, it doesn't feel like uh, wrestling together or sitting with the hard parts of scripture uh, necessarily happens all that much. And and it seems that our hesitancy to go there uh, is uh, not what the early church experienced. What the early early Jewish communities experienced these learning communities where questions were invited and hard discussions, you know, were, were invited. And I do think we live again with a bit of a phobia that something hard is going to come up, you know, that somebody's reading, you know, an Acts that Philip has four daughters who are prophetesses. Mm-hmm. And somebody, you know, brings up the point, well, you know, but didn't Paul say on a number of occasions that women should be silent in the church? So prophetesses usually prophesy. And, um, you know, what we ought to be doing, I think, is when those kinds of things surface, which are what invitations to wrestle, we should be saying, bring it on. Uh, let, yeah. Let's have that conversation. Yeah, I think there's it's worth mentioning a point about kind of what happens psychologically. You know, if you've ever been in a room, where there's a secret discussion kind of happening in your head, but you don't you don't feel safe in saying it out loud. I mean, you're not really going to bring that discussion home in your own life. I mean, it's not going to have the meaning it could have. If you have mental reservations and you're asking questions or making objections silently in your own head, um, and so it limits kind of our Bible engagement. It limits the way we will live out the implications of what the Bible is saying. If we can't have open and honest discussions, then we're short-circuiting the actual work of Scripture in our lives. And so I think another reason, and it's something that in the Christian tradition, ancient Jewish, early Christian, these things were, were openly discussed and debated, and that's the way people brought it home, I think, in their own lives. And that's another loss that uh, we have if we can't do that. If we're saying, yeah, but they, they weren't willing to talk about this or that, so I'm not really buying what they're saying here in this discussion. But if we have an openness, then we can, we can be more honest and real about what it means for us when we have those discussions. I don't yeah. think there's, uh, you know, in the classic list of, of spiritual formation disciplines, you know, there's reading, there's meditating, there's solitude. I don't think officially we've knighted wrestling, but I've wondered if wrestling (laughs) should be included in the list of, you know, spiritual formation uh, uh, practices. And there are things uh, in God's economy that we will never understand apart from going through a wrestling process. Jacob cannot become Israel until he wrestles with God. And, you know, Jeremiah says to the people of God, you'll seek me and find find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So wrestling seems to be part of God's economy. Yeah. And and one of the things that we've heard from some of our immersed groups is they they hardly ever get beyond the second question because the (laughs) second question was, you know, is there anything confusing or troubling to you in this week's reading? And that gives them plenty of material to talk about for the rest of their time. And one of the things that we encourage them to do is to wrestle with it together and that sort of thing, Um, but also to write down questions that 
they didn't really come to a consensus or a satisfactory conclusion on and take it to their pastor and take it to their church leadership to, um, to give to them, to, to potentially get some extra insights from somebody who's been, um, maybe in that passage before or who has extra knowledge or insight or those sorts of things. So I think we're generally just encouraging people to not avoid or skirt around those things that are, um, tricky and, and messy. Yeah. You know, what goes along with that, you guys, is that when, if we're going to be serious about having these kinds of discussions, I think we're going to have to redevelop the skill set of managing disagreement in a group. Yeah. People aren't going to see everything the same. If it's real wrestling versus predetermined and safe answers, you're going to get people who have different perspectives. And I think we've kind of lost the art. Social media has not helped <laughs> um, in, in the sense of how do you handle someone who's right in front of you, right, who doesn't see it the way you see it? Can we be gracious and listening and respectful? even as we share different perspectives and, and we have outright disagreements at times, we have to learn to disagree agreeably, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, again, a lost art because we're not skilled at doing communal Bible engagement. But that's one of the things that will go with this recovery. Yeah, uh, we, we need to challenge the adage, you know, you keep things peaceful by never talking about religion and politics well mm -hmm. we have to with with our religion be able yeah. to have those conversations yep be respectful and, and do it in love yeah okay let's go on to our last recovery number four recover community application versus personal application and i i think this one is also out there for most people we just have been trained repeatedly in sermons, in Bible study materials, in teaching, again and again and again. It's like, what are you going to do with this passage? How is this going to impact your personal life? And again, to repeat Alex's caveat, we're not saying that we don't want you to have a personal application, but what we are missing, if the Bible really is a community formation book, as Scott McKnight likes to call it, then we're missing the fact that the Bible is trying to address these words to our whole community and that he expects the community to figure out what this means to live it out together, not just in isolation as individuals, but as a community created by Christ and living for Christ, what does it mean for all of us in our communal life in front of the world to be living the story of the Bible? And that, again, is, would be a huge recovery if we just didn't default to this personal application, but thought about the community living it out. Yep. Yep. Glenn, I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier in the, the passage in Ephesians about putting on the, the mm -hmm. armor of Christ to, uh, or the armor of God, you know, kind of a spiritual warfare passage passage that we usually take super individualistically, um, which again, it can kind of be a both and sort of passage, right? Each sure, of us can sure. do that. Right. But also, you know, what would it look like for the body of Christ to put on that armor together and, and um, you know, fight this battle of fear, spiritual warfare together? That's like a whole different realm of wrestling yeah. through what, what that actually looks like. Right. And, and thinking about spiritual warfare in communal terms versus just individualistic terms, 
that just gets your mind thinking, wow, I need to go back and look at that passage and say, what does it mean for my community to wear the belt of truth? What, what, how is my community formed by the breastplate of justice? Are yeah. we a place of justice? Are we, do we exhibit the gospel of peace in our entire communal life together in this community? I mean, it just opens up a whole new realm of questions and things that we have to think about. Well, what does it mean for us to do that together? How are we acting together as the people of God to bring this spiritual armor into what is a very real spiritual battle in the world? And so uh, it's interesting that in that passage, one of those, um, the element of the spiritual armor is also the word of God. So I think it's kind of a direct application there to say, how are we communally people of the book so that Mm. we can carry the full armor of God into this spiritual warfare, not just me individually reading the word, but all of us as a community being shaped and formed by the word of God together. It's, it's not like there's no individual admonitions given to people in Paul or Peter's letters. You know, Paul says, be kind, you know, one to another, sure. one to another. So there, there's plenty of that. But again, if you read it, through uh, the lens of community, so much of what Paul, Peter, and others are advocating really are going to take a whole church effort. And then, you know, you go to the early chapters of Revelation, and there are these seven churches, and they're addressed in very pointed ways about where they're strong and where they're weak. And honestly, you know, the, the onus in many ways is put on the leaders, the pastors, Right. of these churches to do to evaluate their congregations in whatever cities they're in and and then to lead their congregations you know uh in places where there's weakness and when, when there's you know uh, prevailing sin that they would correct those together and that where they were strong that they they would reinforce areas in which they were strong and continue but a very communal you know passage of scripture which is i think what we're talking about here you know, and if you put all of these together, I think it really is a paradigm shift for the church. There's new skill sets involved. There's new ways of seeing. There's new ways of listening. So I think communal Bible engagement holds out the possibility for real renewal in the life of the church. All right. So three problems, four recoveries. I think we've all got plenty to think about and work on and ponder. Um, but how about a community application from this very episode? Uh, if all the things that we just discussed really resonated with you, uh, then we'd encourage you to try it out for yourself. Um, go ahead and invite a small group, if you haven't already, to to try Immerse together, to read through the entire New Testament together or another major portion of Scripture and just have these organic conversations together, read together, wrestle together, and figure out how uh, how to apply it together. If you're interested, you can go check it out at ImmerseBible.com. And uh, if you place an order for Immerse through Tyndale.com, you can also get an extra 10% off your order with the coupon code IFBR10. So it's a great time to try it out for yourself and for your small group. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next one.